If you read ahead, I was going to uh, look at verses 1 through 11, uh, but that was just way too much. Um, So we're just going to look at verse 8. And trust me, that will be more than enough for us. Enough to explain and enough to live out in our lives. First uh, Peter 4, 8, uh, the Apostle writes, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Father, this is one single verse in your word, but it is bursting forth with significance meaning, and immense requirement for us, your people. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will illumine our minds. But more than that, I pray that you will give us the strength and the courage to do what is described in this passage. And I pray that that will take place for the sake of your church. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who is the head of the church. Amen. May be seated. Imagine, if you will, a church walking up to the pulpit and delivering his Sunday morning sermon. And in the midst of that sermon, uh, he exhorts the congregation, you really need to stop getting drunk during communion. That's really inappropriate, and the Lord is not pleased at all with your behavior at the Lord's table. And I would be remiss if I also didn't mention that the Lord is not pleased with the sexual immorality that you are tolerating within your midst. It is actually reported among you that there is sin taking place that doesn't even take place among the pagans. One of you is sleeping with his father's wife. And you tolerate it, you're proud, and you don't exercise discipline. That is, in essence, what the Apostle Paul had to do with the church at Corinth. Or imagine, if you will, a pastor, once again, stepping up to the pulpit, addressing the congregation. And he says to the congregation, you know, God is not pleased by your partiality. You're a bunch of snobs. And the fact that you only hobnob with the rich and will not invite the poor into your home is really displeasing to the Lord. And you also need to understand that murder among the people of God is wrong. You are a greedy people, a covetous people, and as a result, you kill one another. This has to stop. Beloved, that is basically what James says to those in his epistle. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, we want to be like the New Testament church. And my response always is, well, which New Testament church did you have in mind? There's the church at Sardis. They had a wonderful reputation, but Jesus said, while your reputation says you're alive, you're actually dead. Or do you want to be like the early church at Ephesus that had abandoned its first love? Or do you want to be like the church at Thyatira? They tolerated that wicked woman Jezebel who called herself a prophetess and she was leading the whole congregation. It's a sexual immorality and idolatry. 
Or do you want to be like the early church at Laodicea that was lukewarm? In fact, it was so lukewarm, Jesus wanted to spit the church out of its mouth. Which early church do you want to be like? Church of Philadelphia. Church characterized by brotherly love. Uh, We need to realize right up front that this side of heaven, there is no perfect church. Last week, we looked at Acts 2, 42 to 47, and we saw the ideal picture of a church. But please, do not take away from that thinking that the early church was ideal, that the early church was perfect because the church was not. The New Testament church from day one was made up of sinners. Redeemed sinners, forgiven sinners, sinners cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, but nonetheless sinners. Which means if the church is made up of sinners, there will always be conflict, gossip, slander, backbiting, greed, arrogance, judgmentalism, you name it, in the body of Christ. That is a given, friends. That's a given because we are an institution of sinners. And if you're a member of this church, before you could join the church, you had to raise your hand and basically admit, yes, I am a guilty sinner, forgiven by Jesus. And when you said that, we said, now you can come on in. But the church is made up of sinners. Now, given the corrupt nature of the pastor of this church and the elders of this church and the deacons of this church and the members of this church and those who attend this church, we have to wonder, how will the church survive? let alone thrive and go out and transform the world. How will that happen? Peter's one word answer is love. Love. Let's look again at what he said. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Earnest Forgiving love is essential if the church is to survive and thrive. Let me say that again. This is my message in a nutshell. Fervent, forgiving love is essential if the church is to survive and thrive. Now, to prove that point and to apply it, I want us to consider four points this morning related to love. I want us to look at the priority of love. And then I want us to look at the plea to love. And then I want us to look at the purpose of love. And then I want us to look at the practice of love, which has to do with application. So let's begin with the priority of love. Uh, Peter is writing in 1 Peter 4.8 in a section that has just, just a number of individual commands that he has for the church. And often you see this in epistles. Often there will be a section of doctrine. And then in the second half, sometimes you might just have just, just a list of things. Now do this, do this, don't do that, and do the other thing. And that's basically what we have here. In verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, not talking about the end of the world, but the end of the old covenant. He says, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then in verse 8 that we're looking at, he says, keep loving one another. In verse 9, he says, show hospitality. And then in verse 10 and following, he says, use your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. So he just has this whole list right here of things that he wants the Christians to do. But notice how verse 8 begins. 
above all. It's as though Peter is saying, it's not as though he's saying, he is saying, above all. I want you to know that you need to do all these things as Christians. But this, let me get your attention, this is the most important one. That's why he begins this exhortation with the words, above all. And I think we can see why he says, above all, love one another, because nothing is more important than love. I don't think anybody here will debate that the greatest of all the virtues is love. Now, let's not take this absolutely. We could say absolutely the greatest love that we are to have is for God. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love our neighbor as ourselves. So this is not to be understood absolutely. This is just a figure of speech. And perhaps more pointedly, this is a pastoral warning, perhaps he knows that that these Christians, above all, need to exercise a love that will forgive because he knows what's going on in that body. So he commands them, above all, to be loving. Now, there are many reasons for this. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By all this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you, what? Love one another. So love is absolutely crucial for our testimony. The world is watching us. They are. And they're waiting for us to fall flat on our faces. But if they can see love in the body of Christ, they will be taken back by that. And they'll say, wow, that's the real deal. They really do love God. And I can tell by their love for one another. So this is very important for the body of Christ. There must be love flowing through our ecclesiastical veins, we could say. Love must be flowing back and forth in the body of Christ. That brings us to Paul's, or not Paul, excuse me, Peter's second point. And that is really the heart of his admonition, which is the plea to love. And he says, keep loving one another earnestly. Several observations here. First of all, I want you to notice that love must persevere. We must never give up when it comes to love. We must work hard at it. It is not easy. We must persevere. If we do not persevere, our love can grow cold. In Matthew twenty four thirteen, Jesus told his disciples, because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. And how sad that is. And you know, I have to wonder how many marriages end because love just grew cold over time. There, there wasn't warmth. There wasn't lively affection. Love just grew cold. A number of, number of years ago, I heard about a couple that was married for 20 plus years. And then the husband had an affair. Well, I had the privilege of talking to many of the family members, and it turned out that the wife admitted, you know, I really didn't treat my husband very well. Uh, One of the siblings of the wife said, you know, she really didn't treat her husband very well. I talked to one of the parents of the wife. You know what? My daughter really didn't treat her husband very well. There, There was a coldness in the marriage, and after 20 plus years, it ended in divorce. It ended in an affair. 
Now, I don't say that that's an excuse. That's not an excuse. There's no excuse. One sin doesn't excuse another one, but it does explain what happened. And the same kind of thing can happen in a church. There, there can be love flowing and warmth for one another and genuine concern. But over time, that can fade and a church can actually become cold. And what a terrible thing if, if a visitor came into a church and thought, feels chilly in here. They're not referring to the temperature. We have to work at it. We have to persevere. And then, I want you to notice, and this is obvious as well, but let me highlight it. Paul's, or excuse me, uh, Peter's concern is that love flow in the church for one another. And his specific concern here is the body of Christ. This is another one of the love, one one another commands. We're to love one another or exhort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. This is another one another. That's the one another is talking about the body of Christ. So Peter's concern here is love within the body of Christ. Not that he's not concerned about their love for God or their love for the lost, but he's saying, I want you within the body of Christ to love one another. And this love needs to be, notice, a passionate love. Love one another earnestly. The NIV says fervently. The NASB says deeply. We could also translate this intensely. Now, the same word is used in Acts when Peter's in prison and we're told that the early church was earnestly praying for Peter. There's an earnestness. There's an intensity. And Peter's saying, that's what needs to take place with your love. There needs to be an intensity, an earnestness about your love. Certainly not a coldness, but not even a casual indifference. There needs to be a fervency of love in the body of Christ. And you know what? There are many applications that could be given. But let me give you just one application. Because I think it applies here in it also relates directly to this series that we have on the church. If you really are committed to loving one another in the body of Christ, that should manifest itself in formal membership. It really should. Think of marriage as an analogy. Many of you know people who are, who are living together, probably in your own neighborhood. I can just look around my neighborhood, all the people that are living together. And if you were to ask them, do you really love each other? I'm sure the vast majority that we really do love each other. But what, what if you took another step and said, then why don't you get married? Well, it's just a piece of paper. Then why don't you just get the piece of paper? I, I remember talking to a couple one time. They were living together and they, and then they were going to get married. They had been living together for a long time, as I recall. And then I asked, I asked the man, actually I didn't have to ask him. He said, because they were going to get married finally, he said, wow, this is a big commitment. And I thought, wow, you've been living together all this time. Everybody knows that there's a difference. That piece of paper says something. That piece of paper says, before God, before man, we're committed. I really mean it. I am committed to you, woman. And the woman says, and I am committed to you, husband. It really does say something. And in the body of Christ, do we really have a commitment if we're not willing to sign on the line that I'm formally going to covenant with these people? I want you to know that in my mind and in the mind of the elders, it makes all the difference in the world. 
Uh, Jeff mentioned to me on, on one occasion, there was, uh, there was a couple that left, and I don't know if he said it, maybe someone else, and I said, wow, I, di- I didn't even know they were leaving the church. And he said, are you going to go after them? And I said, I, I don't know, I've got to think about that. And I, I never gave him an answer, and when him and Jenny came in for membership, I said, Jeff, you asked me a question a while back, and, and I never gave you an answer. I'm going to give you an answer now. You asked me if I ever, if when they left the church, if I would go after them, and then actually, I need to step back a little bit. He asked, if we left the church, would you go after us? And I said, Jeff, here's my answer to your question. Now, I will go after you if you leave the church. Because you're crossing a line. There is a very clear line between those who come, and even if you just come for years. Uh, there's a clear line between that, attending, and saying, we're crossing the line, we're going to sign the piece of paper, we're going to formalize our commitment to this body because we really do love these people and I want you to know that. There's, there's a difference. There really is. People come and go all the time. And really, as with other relationships, I think people don't want to become members because they don't want accountability. They, they want to be free to, to get up and go to another place if someone new comes along or another church comes along. If we really are committed to one another, we will demonstrate that. And I think that's very important in the body of Christ. Just one other comment about this love. Um, this is a love, or this is a plea for our love to resemble God's love. God loves us intensely. A verse that I hope you all know, John 3:16, For God, what's next? So loved the world. Why is that word so in there? And it is in there. For God so loved the world. That, that word means intensity. For God so, we could paraphrase, intensely loved the world that He gave His one and only Son because He was committed to the world and He would demonstrate that love. And that's the love that we're to have. We're to have a passionate love. An intense love for one another. And then Peter leads us to the reason, and we see that in point number three, the purpose of this love. And I've already said that love has many purposes, but Peter has something very specific in mind here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And once again, the assumption here is that in the body of Christ, there is sin. Just look around. There is sin. And not only is there sin, there is a multitude of sins. A multitude of conflicts, strife, envy, jealousy. We could go right on down the list. So given the fact that there is a multitude of sin in the church, what do we need? We need to forgive one another. And if we're to forgive one another, that forgiveness comes from a heart's of love. Notice very carefully, love covers a multitude of sin. What does hatred do? Uncovers it, exposes it, spreads it. Proverbs 10:12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17:9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, 
But he who repeats the matter separates close friends. When it comes to an offense, when it comes to sin, you basically have two options before you. You can cover it up with loving forgiveness or you can expose it for the world to see. And that is so destructive for a church. Jim Cimbala, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, once made a comment that stuck with me. He said, Adultery, drugs, alcohol have killed their thousands, but gossip, slander, backbiting has slain its tens of thousands. And anybody involved in ministry or leadership knows exactly what Jim Cimbala is talking about. I'll take adultery over gossip any day in the body of Christ. Gossip is way more destructive, at least for the church as a whole. And unfortunately, when it comes to gossip, there is always a market out there for the juicy morsel. There is always someone who wants to hear the latest. All you have to do is turn on the TV, watch, watch the news, and they just they want to hear all the juicy information. It doesn't, doesn't matter who it is. It can be Whitney Houston one week. It could be somebody else the next, next week. But they, give me all the juicy details. And people eat it up. And you wonder, why, why is that out there? Because it sells. People want to know. And this is what you need to realize. Gossip is wrong from two angles. Not only from the speaking angle, but also from the listening angle. It is wrong to spread gossip. It is wrong to listen to gossip. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, it doesn't make any difference if you carry around the devil in your mouth or your ear. They're both wrong. It takes two to tangle and it takes two to gossip. And, and here, here's the hard thing about gossip. You, you could be involved in a, in a conversation with somebody and it just, it, sometimes it can just all of a sudden quickly cross over that line. It was okay to a point and then it quickly crosses over that line. This is what you need to realize. When it does cross that line, you have an obligation to say something. You have an obligation to say, we need to stop right here. I'm really uncomfortable with this. This really isn't appropriate. I don't think we should go on from here. You have an obligation to say something. If you are silent, you are complicit in the matter. We have a responsibility. We are commanded everywhere in Scripture to speak up for the innocent. We have an obligation to speak up. So if we are silent... We are involved in that. The other person will assume that we agree with them. And don't be surprised if that gets spread around as well. Well, I'm appalled at what so-and-so did. And and this person agrees with me. I talked to them and they agree with me. Don't be surprised if that gets spread around too. We, We need to exercise tremendous courage here. A while ago, a woman told me she was involved in a conversation and it was a work environment and was involved with another co-worker about the boss. And this woman said it crossed the line and I realized it was wrong. And she said, I, I had to go to this woman and, and say it was wrong. And I, I felt so uncomfortable doing that. That was so awkward to do that. But I felt I really need to do that. And she said, I went and I told the other woman we were involved in this conversation about the boss. And the other woman responded, you know what, you're right. I shouldn't have said that. And I, I tell you, I was so impressed when I heard that. I thought, wow, this is a godly woman. They, they should make a movie about you and they should call it Courageous. <laughs> that is courageous Christianity. I'm serious. That, that, that takes guts. That takes 
a God-fearing conviction to lay yourself out like that. That that is impressive. My estimation of that woman went way up here. Wow, that's something. I I would love to hear more stories about that. More people who would be willing to risk their reputation for the sake of the body of Christ and that person who was slandered. So I want to encourage you. Exercise boldness here. Are you outraged by other sins? Be outraged by this sin. And be outraged by the fact that you were sucked in. You were pulled in. And, and, and let me just be frank. Some of you may, may have some action to take here. You may have to undo some damage. We can't just say, yeah, that, that's a good thing to do. This, this is what God is calling us to do. This, this is how we stop gossip in the body of Christ. What, what would happen in this church if we got a reputation? You know what? If you gossip in this church, you're confronted. The gossip would, would go way down. We have, we have a responsibility here. Now, Peter is talking about forgiveness here when it comes to sin. He's talking about forgiveness, not, not spreading it, not exposing it, forgiving it. But notice that he doesn't say, uh, since love forgives a multitude of sins. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, why does he say that? Because that's a way of saying, do what God does to sin. And what God has been doing to the sin of mankind since the beginning of time. He covers it. Peter's providing us with a picture. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they, they tried to cover their own sin with fig leaves, and that, that was useless. So what did God do? He killed an animal. I'm guessing lambs, I'm not sure. But then he took the skins of the animals and he covered their nakedness which means he covered their shame. He covered their sin. And that's what all the Old Testament sacrifices are, are about. The blood covers our sin. And then ultimately, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sin. And then we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God covering our sin forever. This is Peter's way of saying, I want you to be like God. God covers sin I want you to cover the sins of your brothers and sisters in Christ. They are going to sin. It's inevitable. Just give them enough time. Some of you are new to this church and you think, wow, such nice people in this, in this church. Stick around for a while <laughs> and you will see all the sin in this church. We're, we're a bunch of sinners. But we, we need to cover it. In Psalm 32, 1 and 2, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Peter saying, be like God. Love like God. Forgive like God. Cover the sin up. And whenever I think about this covering of sin, uh, Genesis 9 always comes to mind. And if you have your Bibles, turn to that. Genesis 9, this is right, at, right after the flood of Noah, and verse 20, Genesis 9, 20 tells us that Noah being a man of the soil planted a vineyard, and then it says he drank of the wine and 
became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. I'm not going to get into all the details, but for sake of the argument, let's just, let's just say he sinned terribly, drank way too much, and here he is laying inside his tent drunk. Verse 22 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Isn't that interesting? Noah's on his bed. He's naked. He's drunk. He's not exposing himself. He's inside. Ham sees this. Somehow, he goes outside and he tells his brothers something like this. Hey, you should see the old man. He's passed out on the sofa. What, what a crazy guy. Shem, Jephthah, what do they do? 23, then Shem and Jephthah took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces, faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. What do these brothers do? Ham, what you're doing isn't right. It's not appropriate. We need to respect our father. We need to cover the shame. What a great picture. So they take a garment. They walk backwards. You know what they say? We don't even want to see it. We don't want to see the sin. We don't want to see the shame. We want to cover it. That's what love does. And I think you should also observe this. When Noah wakes up and he finds out what happens, he says, Cursed be Canaan. That's one of Ham's sons. Because of what he did, the curse led to one of his family. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers because of how the father was treated in exposing of his sin. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jephthah and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servants. See what happens here? Not only do we have an opportunity before us, are we going to cover this or expose us, but we also have an opportunity in how we respond. Will I be cursed of God or will I be blessed of God? That opportunity is also before us. And again, let me just remind you, don't we want to be like God? God covers the sin. What does Satan do? Satan means opposer or slander or accuser. Satan is the accuser of the brother. He accuses them of their sin. Satan loves to accuse. He did this and that and the other thing. And God says, yes, and I've covered that. Speak of it no longer. Which also means we have an opportunity to reflect the character of God or the character of Satan. This is what's before us. This is what's needed if the church is going to just, I just say, survive as well as thrive. I mean, a church cannot survive without forgiveness. It, it just can't. If we won't forgive one another, how can we even survive, let alone thrive, build the kingdom, reach this culture? We can't. So we have to be a people of love. We have to make this a priority. And this has to manifest itself in our dealings with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That brings me to our last point, the practice of love. And here I'm talking about application. Because let's just say right up front, this is easier said than done. 
Some of you have been violated in absolutely horrendous ways. I am not oblivious to that. I know that if some of you told your story, we would all be in tears of how you were violated or how you were molested, how you were stabbed in the back. I know that many of you have been violated in the worst of ways. And it's not easy. I, I know to have someone just stand up front and say, well, you need to just forgive. Pastor, you have no idea what I've been through. And, and maybe I don't. But this still applies to all of us. You still have to be forgiven. You still have to forgive. So how can we do this? Well, three ways that I hope are helpful. Number one, realize first and foremost, and I've already hinted at this, that God has forgiven you. And your sin against God, by comparison, is far greater than any sin that anybody has committed against you. And I'm not minimizing the sin against you. I'm just saying your sin against God, if you do want to compare, is far greater. So a good place to begin as a forgiving person is realize how much God has forgiven you. In Colossians 3.13, Paul writes, Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Notice right between forgiving each other and you must forgive as as God has forgiven you. This is Paul's way of saying reflect on how God has forgiven you. How God has loved you, O sinner, and in spite of your sin has forgiven you, has covered your sin, has forgotten about it, doesn't bring it up, doesn't throw it in your face. That's what you are to do to others. So it's very important that we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means our forgiveness. Secondly, let's realize that forgiving is not saying it's okay. One of the great difficulties with forgiveness is that it feels like injustice. It feels like you're saying, it's okay and I'm going to let them get away with it. And that's what makes forgiveness hard. Because you don't want them to get away with it. They shouldn't get away with it because it really was wrong. Absolutely, it was wrong. So what do you do when you want justice? And that's not wrong. It is not wrong. If, if one of my children were violated, I would want justice. And I can assure you, I would demand justice with a loud voice and a repeatedly loud voice. I want justice. That is not wrong. And that is not incompatible with forgiveness. That is not incompatible with forgiveness. We think forgiveness... And wanting justice are two separate things. They are not. How do they come together? The greatest example comes from Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.23 When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. How was He able to do that? How was Jesus able to do that? When he was treated in such a horrible way, 
How was he not able to return evil for evil? And Peter tells us, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's very important. That's very important. The reason why you and I can say, I forgive you and I can let it go and I don't have to bring it up again is because at the same time, while we're saying, I forgive you, we're saying, God, I'm giving this over to you. The one who judges justly. This is a faith issue, friends. Bitterness, resentfulness, unforgiving is a faith issue. And it is faith in God who is the judge. Why are we told not to exact revenge? Because God says, vengeance is mine. It's a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Yes, it belongs to the state, but in the individual level, that belongs to God. And God says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. says, I will repay. God will repay. And if God is going to repay, can't you and I let it go? Certainly. But again, it's a faith issue. We have to really believe that God will take care of it. We really do have to believe, Lord, I'm giving this over to you. I trust you'll take care of it. Often we really don't trust that God will take care of it. And gossip, really, what I, what I think is happening, it's a form of vengeance or seeking justice. They hurt me. I'm going to hurt them by telling someone else and slandering their reputation. See, it's, it's a way of bringing about justice. But God says that's not appropriate. That's a prerogative that belongs to me alone. That's wrong. And two wrongs don't make a right. There's an appropriate way to go about this. And maybe I should just clarify. Many sins, 9 out of 10, 19 out of 20, you just you bear with one another. That's, that's what we read earlier. Bear with one another. I, I come home and you know my wife snaps at me. I just bear with it and say, wow, she's probably having a difficult time with the kids or maybe dinner's not cooperating. Or maybe I come home in a, in a foul mood and I, I'm not as loving as I should be and she just she lets that go. You have a friend. They they just they, they kind of snub you or they do something and you just usually you let it go. But what if you what if you can't let it go? What if you can't let it go? Go to them. Go to them. That's what Matthew eighteen says. If your brother sins against you, go to him just the two of you. Don't go to the pastor, don't go to the elders. Don't go to 20 of your best friends. Don't go to the prayer group and ask for prayer support. Go to that person. And if you won them over, God says, great. If it doesn't work, then you bring two or three others. If that doesn't work, then we have a church issue and we bring the whole church together. But here's the thing, and let's realize this too. Sometimes when you're violated, what has happened to you is the hardest part. Forgiving is hard. John, John Wilson made a comment at, at, at small group, and I, I wasn't even there. Bob told me about it, and, and then the following week I said, uh, Bob, John said you, uh, or excuse me, John, Bob said you made a comment. It really stuck with me. And, and John's comment was, when it comes to an offense and people asking for forgiveness, the hardest part is forgiving. That's so true. It really is. It's hard to forgive. 
in, in the Tuesday night small group, we were going through John MacArthur's book on forgiveness. And, and week after week, I would sit there and I, and I would wonder, are we really doing this? Have we really forgiven? I mean, are we really completely, I mean, completely, 100% free of resentment and bitterness because we have forgiven? Have we really forgiven like that? Or are we still clinging on to little things because we were violated? And we like to hang on to it a little bit. We don't want to let it go completely. This is hard. This is really hard, but we have to, to work hard at it. But God will help, help us. And there's just one final point. The Holy Spirit can intervene in miraculous ways. Corey Ten Boom, many of you are familiar with her. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place uh, that you all must read. An excellent book. During World War II, Corey and her family, sister, brother, father hid Jews in their home, hiding them from the Nazis. Ultimately, they were caught, arrested, put in concentration camps, and they were treated terribly in concentration camps. As you can imagine, just try to picture a concentration camp back in the 1940s. Uh, Corey Ten Boom survived that experience. And then following that time, went out and told the world about God's faithfulness during that time. And part of it is that book, The Hiding Place. On one occasion, he was speaking at a church. And after the service, a gentleman came up to her. And this gentleman was a former guard from one of the concentration camps. Corey recognized the man, even though the guard didn't recognize Corey. And the gentleman came up to Corey and said, Fraulein, I thank you for your message. He held out his hand. And Corey said, I stood there motionless, cold, unfeeling. I could not raise my hand. And she said, I prayed to God. I said, Lord, you have to help me. And then finally, she was able, by the grace of God only, to lift her hand and shake his hand. And this is what she writes in her book, The Hiding Place. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. Isn't that amazing? And then she says, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And by the way, I want to make this real clear as well. Um, I hear many Christians, Christian leaders that I respect, say forgiveness is an act of the will. And what they mean often is it's something you do even if you don't feel it. And I want to say that's halfway right, but you're not completely there. We are to forgive one another from the heart. We're to feel it. I mean that. We are to feel it. If we don't feel it, we don't really mean it. We are to feel it. Which means, how can we do that? Only by the strength of God. That's why we need God. 
That's why we need His Spirit to do a work within us that we don't have. We need God to pour into our hearts a love that isn't there, just like He did for Corey. God needs to give us that love, and He can do it. I love Philippians 1.8. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? Paul is saying, I long for all of you. We could just paraphrase. I love you. And it's with the affection of Christ. Do you see what he's saying? I take that very literally. He's saying, this isn't my love. I I don't love like this. Trust me, just ask my wife. I don't love like this. There's only one explanation for this kind of love and affection and warmth that I have for you. And it's that I am loving you with the very love of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit has poured into my heart and I'm now giving to you. That's what we need. We are talking about a supernatural work of God to love like this, to forgive like this, so that we can be a forgiving church that flourishes. This is essential. But God will do it. And we need to call upon Him to help us to be like this so that we can be the church that He wants us to be. And again, I love Corey's words. He gives along with the command the love itself. When God gives us the command, He gives us the grace to obey the command. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this verse. And Father, I just want to ask You to empower us. Father, I really do pray for this church, for every single person here this morning, that You even now would be so gracious to pour out Your Holy Spirit like a mighty rushing wind, like You did on the day of Pentecost, and that You would flood our hearts with Your love, so that we could love with the capacity that is beyond ourselves. So that we could cover the sins of our brothers and sisters and can continue on in ministry and friendship. Father, we cannot survive without this love. You must give it to us, Lord. So I ask you in the name of Jesus Christ to give us this love. In Christ's name, amen.